Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in the season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. This week, I found myself, as my children get ready to go back into school mode, wondering where their head was at. My daughter is a self-starter. My son needs contact. And so my wife and I found ourselves in an impossible choice. Do we send our kids back to school when we've made it this far without contracting COVID, keeping all of our protocols safe? How do we make this decision? Ultimately, I think we decided to send our kids back to school. And in the midst of doing so, opened up dialogues across our community sphere and in our peer groups of folks who are not only all across the board, but again, this creeping misinformation that is coming. And in betwixt all of that, having to have conversations with folks who, I, I guess the best way to say it, are so tired of having to sift through all the erroneous details that, that sound legit incredible that they are checking out altogether. This is the space that we find ourselves in as we are gearing up for the next set of trials in the George Floyd saga, the, um, after Derek Chauvin was convicted and the um, continued sagas that are happening with Dante Wright's case, with, with uh, Winston Smith's case, um, and all of those happening at the same time as folks in community are trying to figure out what to do in this next wave. There's a lot of anxiety out there as we check in in this moment with folks in our community. So, Miss Georgia, I'm curious. I'm stuck in the midst of impossible decisions. I'm wondering where your head is at. Yeah, Anthony, I think that you hit the nail on the head in terms of parents in Minnesota and being faced with this decision of whether or not to send your children back to school, especially when they are under the age that's eligible for vaccination. But in addition to that, I know that there are so many people here in our community that have relatives, that have friends who have been impacted by Hurricane Ida. And also that we are one of the states that has put ourselves out there to welcome Afghan allies. So there's all of these moving parts again, you know, this week. Um, and, and maybe not necessarily things that are so focused here or centered here in our community, but things that definitely will impact us uh, based on what's happening internationally and what's happening uh, across our country. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you brought those, those, those elements up. You know, our, our, our hearts go out to the folks um, in Louisiana. You know, one of our guests that we had on, uh, Will Snowden, was in the heart of all that was happening there and was, was happy to hear that he was doing okay. He's the um, founder of the Jurors Project out of Louisiana. Um, and so, it, you know, people hearken back to uh, what happened with Katrina when we saw a, a wild exposure of the disparities between people of color and particularly black folks um, and who was not only getting resourced, but I, I think we can remember the news articles uh, that came out. One that was very close together that showed a white couple wading through chest deep water, um, finding bread and soda and a young black man wading through chest deep water looting. 
And those are the language that was used to describe what was happening. And so a lot of us, you know, as, as this is happening in Louisiana are hearkening back to, to how things went down before and it's causing things to come up. Uh, what are you hearing out of Louisiana and what are you hearing out of the experiences of folks in that particular situation? What I'm hearing is that there are millions of dollars of damages and that it is going to be a similar situation to Katrina where you're going to have thousands of people who are going to have to relocate. And you're talking about a city and a state that really just started to bear fruit again from this, you know, Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina. There was a period of a rebuild that the the city and state had to go through from before. So I, I do think that we will see uh, a number of families that will not return to Louisiana. And that was the same thing that we saw after Katrina. You saw a number of families who just left the state altogether and migrated to different places. Uh, so for for our community, Anthony, what, what that means uh, on a deeper sense is folks who are having to process layers of displacement. You know, when you, when you even go back to um, colonization and uh, the amount of uh, separation that we had with our, our homeland and coming to this country and having to understand our identity through that. And then now here, this is another migration that is not necessarily something that folks planned for or hoped for or wanted, but are having to adjust to. And so when you constantly uproot and uproot and uproot, it, it does something to your identity. Uh, but it, I mean, it also does something for your, your resilience, right? And your strength as well. So there's, it's like a double-edged sword. You know, here at the Center for the African Diaspora, we have had folks already from Louisiana who are inquiring about places to go and inquiring about programming around who have called uh, to try to get their kids uh, situated in in programming that reflects them themselves. So, you know, when you brought that forward, you know, I'd seen that firsthand. I I think it's interesting, again, that we have this confluence happening. We've talked about this uh, several times because Minnesota is known for a resettlement area. Um, in terms of our Karen refugees that that came, um, uh, the Hmong peoples that came into this space, um, Somali communities in our area, even with the layers of disparity that we have here, we also have a very robust uh, social service and refugee settlement um, work that has happened at least in the past. Are you getting the sense that that same ethos is being marshaled for our Afghan brothers and sisters who who helped us out during that 20 year uh, engagement there that are now looking for places to be? Are you getting a sense that that same apparatus is being marshaled for those folks? Well, I can't say that I have the same pulse on, on that as I do the situation in Louisiana. And so it's a little bit harder to gauge, especially because I feel like a lot of the information is, uh, I don't want to say classified, but definitely hasn't been released as much as I would have hoped it would uh, by mm-hmm. this point. But there are a number, there's about, I, I want to say five or six states, including Minnesota and Utah, that have uh, written, the governors have written letters saying that they would gladly welcome Afghan allies. And so I, my assumption would be 
that those would be the immediate states um, where uh, allies would be sent to. But uh, that is not something that I have been able to confirm yet. What is the plan? What is the strategy? Uh, the other thing that I've been trying to get a pulse on is how much verification was done uh, when they were boarding planes in uh, Afghanistan and coming here and how much of that verification did they say that they would take care of it when they got here. And so I, I still feel like there's a bit of processing that's happening mm -hmm. with the thousands of people, um, troops included, that have uh, come back home. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to that point because, you know, in, in previous conversations with um, around the, the refugee status, you know, all the way from Rondo neighborhood to, to our, uh, our uh, Filipino communities, Hmong brothers and sisters coming into the space. One of the things that we have seen is that refugee populations are often placed in areas where there are already uh, communities that are, are, are themselves trying to get on their feet from previous interruptions um, and what that, what can come out of that. And so one of the things that I've heard begin talked about in community is one, how do we welcome and create an environment that does, that welcomes differently than our past experiences, which haven't always been rosy. Right. And there has been, um, you know, conversations that didn't have bridges that weren't built and folks are all of a sudden arriving and, and, and we haven't done that well. So there's I have been a part of conversations like that. Yeah. I'm curious. You know, we've we've got all this stuff that we're still trying to resolve racially right. here. Right. And now we've got an influx of folks uh, from a different cultural space who are happy to be here and not yeah. there. That, that just makes sense. We can agree on that across the board but there's going to need to be some tie-in work, right? I'm curious about the conversation that's going to happen when we say to our African brothers and sisters and say, hey, all right, come here. Let us let us, let us us give you our perspective of what Minnesota feels like. I'm curious <laughs> to, to uh, what you've been thinking about in terms of that conversation that's going to be coming. I hope that we can learn from our past experiences and make it a more pleasant uh, welcome. You know, I, I, I truly do. Uh, who, who spearheads that effort? I'm not sure. But what I, I do know, Anthony, when I was in D.C. for the March on Washington, the 58th annual, uh, I did I, I swung by the White House and I saw a small group of people gathering there, a few who were holding signs that said protect Afghan. And so although we know that there are thousands of people who had to flee their homes to come here, I, I do think that, that, you know, they would have much rather have stayed home than to, to come to our country where they're mm. going to uh, immerse themselves in a new set of, of issues. And the reason why I say that is because I've been following what a lot of the uh, Republican leaders have been saying the commentary on Fox News about uh, the Afghan allies coming here. Mm -hmm. And there has been so much ignorance in their cultural identity, their nationality, um, that it, it just it feels very harmful and, and hurtful. Uh, people calling out Ilhan Omar as though she's from huh. Afghan and she's not. And so, you know, I don't want to point too much specifically the who and what, but if you follow, you've heard it. And it, it, it's it's in the same vein of the white supremacy that attacks blackness. It's, it's from that same group of people. 
And so I hope that those who have been fighting for liberation can start to uh, create some efforts that will result in a more welcoming environment and culture for our Afghan allies. You know, one of the things that, um, and, and the reason this is so prescient forward on my mind right now is, is sim- uh, recently on the Counter Stories podcast, we have some some local Afghan uh, residents, Minnesota residents, who are doing some work to resettle folks, bring some of these things to light. And there is so little. They gave us a history course on <laughs> the history of Afghanistan. And one of the things that we made sure to do in there is to connect the fact that we have been involved in that country for for well beyond the um, 20 years of this war um, and have been responsible for some of the destabilization that's happened prior to what's going on now. And so one of the things, if you know, we're talking about bearing witness and speaking truth to the full experience, a lot of that history and nuance is going to have to be um, is going to have to be explored if we're going to really be able to be in a space of welcoming folks as they are. This is one of the things that I think is essential. We we have a community that says you can be who you are, at least on paper. But then in the terms of the actual experience, you can be who you are as long as it fits within the context of this particular cultural dominant frame. And that's something that we right. have seen our communities push back on. Right. And so, so how do we, how do we make sure that our Afghan brothers and sisters and allies that are coming into this space understand that the opportunity to be exactly who you are in this milieu that we're trying to build together is possible? That you do not have to um, assimilate to a dominant cultural sphere in order to be successful and thriving in our society. That's going to be a huge conversation. So, uh, Ms. George, our guest today, um, it comes to us with a lot of experience and, and a heavy task on his plate as well as we think about how we how we deal with these moments in our community and plan for our future. So, uh, Brother Zachary Hilton, why don't you come in, in and introduce yourself to us and tell us how you come to us today. And then I'd love to get your feedback on what you've heard me and Ms. Georgia talking about so far. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me here. My name is Zachary Hilton. Um, I play a bunch of different roles in the community and in my professional life, which is the easiest to, to turn to. <laughs> but um, uh, right now I live in Columbia Heights. I spent a lot of my life in, in St. Paul and on the east side and in Ramsey County. I work for Ramsey County government in the county manager's office. Um, and everything I do is around ensuring that people have the opportunity and especially the people that are most harmed by by systems and, and structures and institutions uh, can play an active role and are expected to play an active role in redesigning those institutions and that our, our leadership is is ready to to uh, deconstruct and and reconstruct them in a different vision to meet different types of outcomes you know so I don't know. I try and carry that with the work that I do outside of my job and the boards that I volunteer on, and just the way I try and like show up in community too. So, 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 brother Zach, as you heard some of the things that um, uh, Ms. George and I were, were surfacing, what, what what was coming up for you as you were listening to that exchange? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that I. Uh, when I think about like uh, finding ways to assimilate to Americanism, um, 
some of the things that really stand out to me is that Americanism is often defined in relation to like the hierarchy that exists in America and mm. and often to find yourself feeling successful it comes hmm. at a comes at like a with 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 a comparison to someone who's not and so it's almost like safe for you as a new american to be able to differentiate yourself yourselves from the americans that are at the bottom of of the totem pole and so it's like i was just i was just thinking about like i can just imagine the first of all the need to find some level of like solidarity and safety and the easiest way to turn to that is by feeding into to our racial caste system and finding their place in it that's not at the bottom which i think has huge implications for racial equity as we continue to think about like how are we investing in in black people especially and in Ramsey County who are at the at the top of all of our disparity charts along with american indians so hmm. and could you just elaborate more over the last year how your work has aligned with that effort yeah i think there are things that i could say from a what's said during meetings by important people versus a what's the authentic change i like the way you put that i like the way you put that <laughs> yeah no i think it's it's on it is honest progress to have leadership be at a point where they can think progressively but it is another level to have an organization that's nimble enough to reform and transform itself to center center the most marginalized people's lives that's like <laughs> most places do not have the infrastructure for that level of change and to build that infrastructure takes time it takes resources so i guess there's been a lot that's been done throughout the the pandemic um the pandemic to me has been a huge opportunity for us to stand up like institutions that share power and um have our leadership be open to things they were never open to in the past in terms of like progressive transformation to ensure people are safe i mean in ramsey county we uh our, our populations of folks that were uh incarcerated in our our correctional facilities you know for we have something called uh Ramsey County Correctional Facility which is which is um organized through corrections and and the population decreased by over like 74% right you have so many vacant beds where you can we were almost considering taking a wing of it and turning it into like homeless homeless respite because of how how vacant it was um and in the jail the decrease uh admissions by like 50 something percent like that's that's significant um and so that's where i think there's been huge changes the the pandemic has been an opportunity for local government to to really swing in one direction or the other and i'm thankful that Ramsey County leadership was open to swinging <laughs> in a more progressive 
direction. Now, I think the difficulty now is like, how do you how do you make that sustainable? And that's, I think, where we're transitioning into as like a another step in the process. Well, I'm definitely seeing a whole new level of willingness to have conversations that weren't on the table before. But but there is also that sense, Brother Zach and, and Ms. Georgia, um, this sense that the um, the deep energy that was there around the events of this past summer may be waning in some way um, in that folks are, are you know, the, the sense of, all right, we did that. We spent a little time doing that. And now I'm starting to see folks having to marshal kind of to re-up the energy, to, to keep it going, right? To, to restoke some fires in that regard. And I'm just curious, you know, what y'all's experiences um, of that are. Is, is, is what the, are the changes that we've seen so far, are they changes that you see as sustainable, as changes you see as having momentum long-term, or are we still in carrying over some of this energy from this past summer? I think some things will stay and some things will go. Um, I know so many people, myself included, have overextended themselves in, mm. in trying to do something. I have said this many times. I think I said this yesterday where, you know, I just, there was a point where I was like, I don't have children, but if I did, if I had grandchildren and they were learning about this in school, this time in school, and they asked me like, hey, what did you do about it? I'm like, I don't want to. I want to have a good story to tell. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to, I don't want to have like some, yeah, it, it better be exciting. It better be worthwhile. And then just thinking in general, like I don't want the next generation to have to deal with, to have to go through what I have gone through as a, as a black man in Minnesota or wherever they live or whatever identity they have, however they want to claim themselves. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've totally like overextended myself to be able to feel like I'm a part of doing something. And I'd say that um, while there is, while lots of opportunity uh, came out of these moments, whether that's from the death of, of multiple people in our, in our communities, whether that be from violence or from, uh, from the pandemic or what have you, um, I think it's realistic to believe that we can't really sustain all of that change all the time. It's pretty exhausting. There's a lot of people that have like completely burnt out. I mean, I was just like talking with my employer today and I have like, uh, like 130 hours of vacation I need to use just because of how much like we've been working overtime to I don't know, make sure we're doing something different because what we were doing before mm. didn't work. So I, I guess I'm, I, I think there's opportunities for some things to stick and some things won't. But I guess I'm, I'm hoping that the things that, that stick are impactful and are the things that our community wants to stick, you know? Absolutely. And out of all the change that you've seen that's been made over the last year, year and a half, what change would you be most proud of, you know, if you had a child or grandchildren to to tell about this era? What one thing has happened that you've witnessed in the last year and a half that, that really makes you proud? Well, that's a great question. I think in my workspace and in my life and networks, I 
have become more emboldened to recognize my own humanity and identity and my own like racial identity and and other places recognize it too like i think pre 2000 like 18 2019 to say um to talk about blackness in government would be foreign <laughs> where now is that if we have conversations in government that are policy conversations and we don't talk about blackness it is looked down upon which i am so proud to say that i was a part of establishing that culture i'm not i can't like say that it's every single corner of like ramsey county's infrastructure is has been set up to um, um to normalize that conversation but We've gotten so far into, uh, <laughs> just to give you an example, I'd say one of our board meetings, uh, we started to talk about like racial equity and some board members were like uncomfortable. Uh, I think some of the language we were using was around like, I think I talked about like white supremacy within um, health institutions. And another board member you know, shared with me, like, I don't think that's a appropriate way to like talk about things. Like that's a, that's a way to turn some people off. And I was like, I don't go a day at work without say like what, <laughs> without talking about white supremacy. I mean, like those words come out of my mouth or the mouth of other leaders that I work with, regardless of their race, um, every day of my work life. And it's curious that you would presume a nonprofit that's like focused on serving, um, serving communities of color that have health access issues would be way more progressive than the government funder that probably, I mean, there's probably regressive funding cycles that we're a part of too. So I'm not going to like claim that it's every single, like I said, every single mechanism with the Ramsey County is to that level. But I don't know. That really took me aback to say like, wow, we must be in a different place as a, as a government, if I can talk about white supremacy in the government, but I can't at a nonprofit that's really focused on serving people of color. So I don't know. I think that's something to, to celebrate when like the county attorney talks about how white supremacy is ingrained in his structure and that his entire system is built to disenfranchise and dis disconnect black families. That's a, that's a huge progress. Um, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up just because, um, you know, county attorney, um, the, the Ramsey County attorney is also the county attorney that brought charges in the Yanez case with, with Fernando Castillo, a former classmate of mine. And, um, the, I, I thought it was, it was interesting to watch the, the heartbreak when you you felt like you've teed it up. To 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 be the case where where justice uh, got served, only to find that that the the jury uh, decided differently, and I think there has been a struggle with that ever since that 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 office you know tried to do that. 
and and I also want to mark off the fact that you're you're talking about bringing up white supremacy and it's and I'm I'm assuming in its full capacity, right? Because most folks only seem to think about white supremacy in terms of of um, you know uh, Ku Klux Klan members or overtly racist folks and and progenitors of hate crimes. When what we're talking about is something that 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 um, elevates and preserves the positive outcomes for for white folks in our community to the detriment of people of color in our community, which is also part of the mix, right? So, so white supremacy isn't just the Klan hat. And, and so to hear you kind of articulate the challenge there, even within a space where, that you expect it to be more, more, more progressive and to see it moving forward in a space that you thought would be less so, I mean, those are, those are some changes that I have seen as well right? Where we have a reckoning, not just with the content that's in front of us, but with the institutions that we're in. I have seen church spaces as a clergy myself. I have seen church spaces where um, (laughs) I expected us to be able to go full charge into the taking care of the, the poor, those who are most hurt, those who are most in need, right? With our social gospel principles who have been tiptoeing around this idea in the same way that you described in, in, in the, in the organization that you were, you were working with. And then I have seen churches who have no connection, have historically not had any will to be in this conversation, actually bring forward conversations about reparation. Like how do we take our money and resource and make reparations happen? Like this, this is a very interesting time in that regard. So that resonated when you shared that. In organizations right now, racial equity is we just need to diversify the staff. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't <laughs> and I'm not going to pretend like I said before, I'm not going to pretend that there aren't departments who still say that same thing. And I mean, that's true. That's still a part of the entire nexus of what moving to an institution that uh, that is actively working against like white supremacy looks like. I mean, that's, that's true. But like the real difficult part is when, uh, when there is no like clear answer to your structure or your system, um, when you don't know what the right thing is. I mean, it's like, that is, I think where we're graduating to where there's no playbook for how to, how to stop perpetuating racism because it is so ingrained into every single component of your institution, just like Americanism itself, like I said earlier. Um, and that's, I think, where we're like, where we're moving towards, which then brings up questions around democracy and capitalism that I think are even more difficult to broach. Uh, recognizing the fact that not all of our community is at the same place that our government leadership is. And when I say all of our community, that, that is inclusive of, of our, our BIPOC community, our black community, our, our American Indian community. Like, um, whereas I feel like there are a number of people in government right now, okay, this give me in trouble, <laughs> that are abolitionists. I don't feel like I would see that. I don't feel like that is as pervasive in the communities that those folks who I think would be self-proclaimed abolitionists are intending to see outcomes change for. Does that make sense? Like, 
Well, yeah. could, you, could you just clarify a little bit when you say abolitionists, are you referring to police departments? I think when we think about some of the transformation that I mentioned earlier, like in the jail space, I think there are some folks that are even thinking about like, what would it be like to not ever really need a jail? Or why do we have so many institutions like that? If one, they're kind of built to, to, um, uh, part, part of their construction supports harm, uh, and they're not really improving potentially the community wellness. Uh, so yes, on an abolitionist front, there's abolition around police, there's abolition, abolition around public safety structures in general. And I would say there's even abolition to the current structures and departments that exist in our government period right now. Like, for instance, um, there are some components of child protection that I think abolitionists would see as a part of their framework. I think that is a very radical, right now, uh, very radical identity to have. Nevertheless, I still feel like, um, just to give you an example, Ramsey County closed Boys Totem Town, which is a long Come on, standing. I was hoping you were going to bring Totem Town up. Yes, Go ahead. yes. And, you know, I had the opportunity to, to spend some time in the community with, with some black elders. And they were lambasting the decision to close Boys Totem Town because they were concerned that we need to have a close, close proximity-wise, location to send our youth. And the promise with the closing of Boys Totem Town is more so around we are not going to send as many youth to out-of-home placement and instead build infrastructure in our community for our community to take care of itself. And that has been happening. Our numbers on out-of-home placements continue to decrease. Um, while disparities remain what they remain, um, it's still real that we are seeing less youth in placement, less youth in detention. Um, but as our community has been indoctrinated under a narrative that recognizes our response to behaviors to include some form of harm, I don't know if everyone is ready for such a progressive narrative to drive how we understand a new form of public safety. See, I, I think you hit... I think you hit right in the wheelhouse of of what is is at the at the crux of this change space right now. I mean, we've got folks who are willing to go into a place to completely reimagine how we do everything. And um, what you said about the indoctrination, right, of how we have done things in the past this this is a, this is a huge piece. We can we 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 seem to have. Uh, a, a, a huge fear, and we, I mean the collective we in this nation, of reimagining something that's been along for a long time solely because we have no other thing in our minds that we can imagine it being. And so moving into that creative space becomes problematic. I remember going and doing doing bonfire gatherings at Boys Totem Town and, and working with youth with, with, with Sergeant Carter and Save Our Sons and so many other folks and, and all this programming that we would do to go there. And then over time to see that that we're doing so well, 
interrupting the pipeline to that place that it it there it no longer is needed um as a huge win and i remember being in the in the in the conversation around community where folks are like well what what's going to take its place and i remember being in rooms where folks from from corrections folks from the county folks from 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 juvenile detention alternatives they're like no 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 wait 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 you don't understand we're not closing it because we don't just because we don't want it. No, no, no. We have a whole different situation. It is not needed. It is not necessary. There is nobody to fill it. And I I remember folks kind of with blank stares in some of those meetings going, wait, trying to wrap their, head, their heads around the fact that there is not a need for that type of institution in this space. That was huge. And I think that underscores one of the big fears that folks have right now is that there's a whole group of folks and a growing number of folks who are willing to completely reimagine. And the things in people's minds are, okay, well, well, what am I going to lose if we go and reimagine something completely new? And this assumption that there has to be some kind of loss and there can't be all of these things to gain by being creative and reimagining for a whole new world, a system that dates back all the way to a time that's unrecognizable to now. So I, I think that's an important piece that I've I've seen as a through line here is that willingness or unwillingness to create the new. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. And I think, especially for our elected leaders, they are restrained by that perception of the way our community is thinking right now too. And so while behind closed doors, they may be willing to, like I said, be thoughtful, um, and and we can celebrate their progressive thoughts. Turning that into action uh, requires a level of strategy and engagement um, that's that's not easy, and it takes a lot of time. So that's all to say that I think the community in Ramsey County is becoming a much greater partner in moving forward policy than I think they have before. Um, and at the same time, that means that there's still a need to invest in community infrastructure to help build the community's capacity to be able to be effective at those tables and be able to think through exactly how they want to present. So I don't, I'm, I'm thankful that we're at least here at this point and like looking forward to seeing what's going to happen next. Yeah, and I think that's a great segue because as you have the example of Boys Totem Town being closed and, you know, you're um, toying with this idea of abolition and not just in police departments, but across other sectors like jails and um you, you mentioned a few other systems, right? How how realistic is it for Ramsey County to abolish other systems that have historically been oppressive to Black people? I think it depends on what you mean by realistic. I mean, um, I think where previously our leaders would say that's not possible, Meaning, like, I don't think, I don't believe I have the power to make that happen. Now, I think they're pretty clear that they can do things, which is wonderful to see when a leader, like, when a bureaucrat recognizes, like, their power. Um, but like I said, I don't, 
while again, there are still Ramsey County leaders that are still on their journey to, to identify and center Black lives and bodies uh, as a priority, I still think there's work to do to ensure that our community is on board with that prioritization as well. So I don't know if that, that's like a, that might be like equivocating around the answer, but I think um, if someone was ready to, to receive a whole bunch of backlash and probably not get elected again, yeah, there's some folks that could just do it. And I think there are some folks that are ready to just do it. Um, so that could be realistic and that like, yeah, it could happen. But uh, in terms of like what would happen in the next year, uh, I don't know that our community is ready for a lot of that type of change yet, you know? You know, you know, there's 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 one point around abolition as you asked that question, Ms. Georgia, it's got me thinking that abolition in this context is very different than what abolition means in the context of, for example, our historical understanding of abolition in relation to slavery. Um, abolitionists in large part were, were, were so focused on ending a particular institution, um, but one of the critiques of that is that there wasn't an attention to what comes next or how do we support those in transition. Um, and there are many examples of folks being left on their own by the abolitionist friends post-reconstruction uh, <laughs> um, that was very problematic. In this context, however, um, it, folks will often present abolition as solely the the ending of a one way of doing things. But most, many of the communities and folks who are having this conversation about abolition are also doing the work of imagining what else could take its place or what new things could be there. I think that's an important thing that goes hand in hand um, with abolition in this current context um, that I think is, is a very important and yet underlooked or, or under um, underexamined piece of what abolition means here. And oversimplification can often happen in that regards too, and in large part for political talking points. And so I just, I wanted to put that out there that what I've heard in terms of abolition has been much more than what I've heard in previous uses of the term. I, I just want to follow up on that piece. I, I appreciate you saying that because I think now more than ever, we have... We have great ideas as to other ways of doing things. Um, but it's difficult to be able to present that in a, I will say, I don't think we've, we've like figured out the one-liners yet to sell the ideas, hmm. you know, um, because that's kind of like, you got to be able to, it's easier to call a crisis in a one-liner than it is to like talk about huh a very involved solution. So I, I think we've got some learning to do to figure out how to communicate some of these great ideas that are coming down the pipeline because they're also built by people that have foundations of knowledge and understanding that not everybody has when, when we think about like racial equity as a reality rather than like a, or, or we could even talk about like critical race theory as like, Something that is um, unpalatable for some. So that to me is like when we come from different bases of knowledge to be able to bring everybody together on some of these different ways of knowing and doing. 
there's a lot of, like I said, I said before, like strategy around communications that I still think we need to invest in developing. Well, Brother Zach, we're we're coming to a close, and one of oh, sorry, I said Brother Zach, but I didn't even check to see if if Zach was something you go with. So, Brother Zachary, <laughs> um, we're coming to a close, and one of the things that we always do is we check in with folks because uh, part of our goal here on Bearing Witness is to check in with folks in community throughout this season of reckoning and uprising to so that we have a record of what folks in different sectors and different places were encountering. And so the thing that we always end on is a question, how are you being you in this moment? Um, and what we mean by how you, how are you being you is, is how are you, um, how are you holding on to who you are and how are you experiencing this moment? What are you doing? What are you thinking? What are, all those things. It doesn't really translate well into English, but how are you being you in this moment? We'll start with you and then we'll check in with Miss Georgia. So how are you being you in this moment, given all that we've talked about so far? This is a very personal question, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. I think... um, I've spent a lot of time in the past year thinking about the future because I care about it a lot. And I I want the world to be better for, for, for the people that come after me. There's no reason why it should be worse. Um, and I want to feel responsible for what comes after too. Um, and more recently, I have been so tired of spending my time coming up with this stuff. So I've been trying to find ways to enjoy the present. And so after this, I'm about to get some ice cream with some kids and this family and uh, just like talk about our day. So I'm just trying to balance those, the future and now. And then, you know, this whole saying Kofa thing is, you know, I got to do some reading later tonight, too, to actually um, learn about some maps and history and all that stuff, you know? So I just try and, like I said, I try and balance all those realities at the same time. So I don't know. Maybe that's a good that. answer to your question. I love that. Sankofa, go back and fetch it, right? Looking at who we were, who we are, and who we want to be. Uh, Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? Yeah, I mean, uh, Brother Zachary, so powerful there. It's hard to follow that. But, you know, I'm I'm learning. I'm learning more about balance, I think, too, and how to have uh, so much of my my day and my time focus on building and changing the narrative, but also pouring into my daughters. And uh, that, that has been a challenge to balance this year because of the work I do and how... Um, how how prominent it was, you know, that that work this year. So yeah, I'm balancing, preparing um, to send my oldest back to school, and working with her a lot to um, prepare her for eighth grade. She's 13, and I think that's a pivotal age. And so I've been taking her to play tennis, and we bought bikes, and so we've been going bike riding, and just really trying to enjoy. Uh, these last few years before she's 18 and off to college, you know, it goes, it flies by so fast. So I've just been learning how to um, have that balance. And and also I'll say in fostering conversations around what has happened here in the Twin Cities over the last year and a half 
And I, I've realized that the exhibit that I launched has been a great launching pad for those conversations because people come in when the galleries open and um, it's very intimate now that the openings pass. And so I'm having a lot of conversations with people in community who are just really for the first time reflecting on their participation. And so that is, that's been very eye-opening and inspiring as well. Ms. Georgia, can you talk? I know, I know I, I got my answer ready for coming, so I'm not going to leave you hanging, but can you, can you talk a little bit about your, your, your gallery? This is the second opening of uh, your Freedom of the Press um, uh, uh, gallery. Can you talk a little bit about that so folks know how to access it? Absolutely. Right now it's on display at Urban Ventures 3019 uh, 4th Street in South Minneapolis, so just off of Lake Street. And I mean, there are images from the last year and a half of what our city has been through. And then also I traveled to Washington, D.C. for the inauguration. So after the January 6th attack and seeing the Capitol and the White House on Trump's last day and Biden's first day. So they're very historic images and, and people really connect with the images here. And, um, and a lot of people are like, I was there that day, you know, and so it takes people back. I think, you know, we have these milestones like the, you know, verdict and sentencing and the day Dante Wright was killed. You have these, these days that you don't, you'll never forget, but then there were so many days in between that led up to that point that I think people have, have started, they've started to for, forgotten those moments. And so these images allow people to go back and reflect on all of the, the different protests that got us to where we are today, all of the different actions, the artwork the protest artwork, um, the different events that were held in solidarity with other cities who were having their own issues, like with Breonna Taylor, you know, their Minneapolis stood in solidarity with Louisville. And so all, all of those things. And so, yeah, um, the exhibit is open through September 25th. Gallery hours are Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And um, yeah, if, if you're able to swing by, feel free to do so. If not, you can also look at the images on my website, georgiafort.com. They're available in a photo book that is available for purchase. So I just, I want to, I want to underscore that just because one, the work is impeccable. It is an ama is amazing work, an amazing way of capturing this moment. And I think that's where I find myself being me the most right now is, is being in an intersection of, um, being at an intersection, not just because of my my ministry work, but but an intersection of folks being able to tell their stories in a way that's real, in a way that that attempts to to leave the past trappings of how you're quote unquote supposed to be articulating your story and just dealing with the real in front, right? Um, it, it, it's like if somebody's got something on their on their shirt, you tell them. If something has something in their nose, you tell them, right? And we used to be in a space of polite. Um, disregarding of the things that are in front of us. And I'm being facetious, but what I am finding more keeps me grounded and centered right now is being able to say, this is real. This experience happened. Um, and whether that's walking with folks in their own family, familial experiences, naming exactly what the hardship is right now at the moment. Um, you know, I, I was with my, my children 
And and I love that you said tennis, Miss Georgia, because we're we going to challenge y'all to a tennis match because we've been out hitting the courts ourselves. So we're going we gonna to do that. But um, as we are playing together, we are finding ourselves finding comfort and just being able to name what's happening in front of our eyes because so much around us is trying to craft talking points to craft a particular narrative about how something is to meet somebody's own belief about how their world should be instead of encountering the world as it is and using how what our past experiences to make sense out of it. And that's a shift that I'm, it, it, it may be philosophical and I'm a philosopher, so that's how I be. But that's how I'm finding myself being me is just finding moments to be able to say, yes, this is real because so much around us is trying to distort what is real. From misinformation around vaccines to misinformation about our own history to legislation even allowing us to tell our history in the first place. I'm finding comfort in, in censoring by being able to name what is real. I want to thank everybody for this conversation. I know we're coming to a close and Brother Zachary, we always end uh, with this quote from one of our, our, our favorite teachers and healers in community. So I'm going to give it to you, Miss Georgia. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the Racial Reckoning Project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>